Tonight's reading is from Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24 to 29. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Well, as James mentioned at the start, one of the things that we do twice a year as a church is just take a step back and remind ourselves who we are as a church and why we do what we do. And we call this Vision Sunday. We do one in uh, the beginning of October and we do one uh, sometime in January. And it's just a really helpful aid, and it has been over the years that we've done it, to remind each other what it is that God has called us to do and be as a church. Because it's very easy for us to forget. It's very easy for us to somehow get distracted by other things and think that's the main thing. Whereas what we do on these particular Sundays is remind each other this is what God has called us to do. This is what God has called us to be. And this is why we use the resources that God has given to us. The people, the money, the time, the gifts, the buildings. This is why we use them in the way that we do because this is what we believe God has called us to do and be. A vision enables us to say yes to some stuff, but it also enables us to say no to other stuff, some of which may be really, really good. But we don't sense that that is what God is calling us to make a priority. And I wonder this evening what you think it is to be the church. What does uh, being the church feel like? Is it about a building? Is it about amazing music? Is it about incredible friendships? Well, about two months ago now, I had the privilege of meeting a 26-year-old church leader called Father Daniel. Um, as part of my sabbatical, uh, Kathy and I went um, to Chicago for a conference, and Father Daniel was one of the guests, and that was uh, a Friday evening when we met him. And um, he's, he belongs to what he called the ancient church of Iraq. Um, they still speak Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke. There's only about 4,000 people in the world that speak that particular language. At one point he said, um, he was asked to pray. And, and someone, he, he said, well, do you want me to pray in the language that Jesus prayed or in English? And everyone said, no, I think we'll go for the language that Jesus used, please. And he prayed in Aramaic. But as I listened to his story, I was incredibly humbled. And I want you just to watch for a few minutes a video that was shown at that conference that demonstrates what it's meant for Father Daniel to be the church where God has called him to be. Erbil is about 25, 30 miles north of Mosul. It's where Kieran Barnes, one of our mission partner, lives and works. 
And this is what it has meant over the last two years for Father Daniel to be the church. In his words, 1,600 is not a small number. It is a big number. The previous day, he had in his church 100 people. That was how large Father Daniel's church was. And yet in 24 hours, he had 1,600 people who were refugees from Mosul living on his doorstep. And he was faced with a challenge. What did it mean for him to be the church? I wonder how we would react if tomorrow morning we woke up and there were 1,600 people queuing outside on your place. How would we be the church in response to them? In the passage that Hazel read for us a few moments ago, Jesus does not mince his words. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, then turn again to Matthew chapter 7 and verses 24 to 29. We have here Jesus concluding what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew concludes the teaching that Jesus has been given, giving to his followers, to his friends, which has been overheard by a crowd of thousands of people who are listening in as Jesus speaks to his disciples, as Jesus is outlining to his followers, to his friends, what it means to live life in the kingdom of God. And as thousands of people are eavesdropping in on the teaching of Jesus, Matthew ends this particular part of his gospel with these words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There are five times in his gospel when Matthew uses words like this, after Jesus had finished teaching. Matthew chapter 7 verse 28, that's this one. Matthew chapter 11 verse 1, Matthew chapter 13 verse 53, Matthew chapter 19 verse 1, and Matthew chapter 26 and verse 1. Already Matthew has used echoes of the stories of Exodus. And now Matthew is signifying, he's signaling, he's signposting to us that just as there were five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, Matthew is signaling, signposting to us that there are, if you like, in his gospel, five books of Jesus. And what he's doing, because Matthew is writing predominantly for a Jewish audience, is he's signaling something. He's saying Moses had these five books, what we call the Pentateuch, but Jesus has these five books in my story of the life of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And what he's doing is he's telling us that Jesus is like Moses, only more so. This morning at the 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock, we looked at at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul again draws a comparison between Moses and Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says um, that Moses had this glory that shone from his face, when he he met with God. And when he came down from meeting God, he had to to put a veil over his face because the Shekinah glory was so brilliant, so dazzling, so blinding to the people of Israel that they couldn't actually look upon the face of Moses. And he had to put a veil over his face. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if that covenant 
which brought death and condemnation was glorious, then how much more glorious is this covenant, this relationship between God and humanity that's been brought by Jesus, which is far greater than the Moses one, how much more glorious is this one? And what he's saying to to the church in Corinth is Jesus is, is like Moses, but more so. And in Matthew's gospel, what he's signifying is Jesus is like Moses, but more so. He's greater than Moses. He's more than Moses. Because time and time again, Jesus did something that was really unusual for his culture. Really unusual for a a rabbi or a prophet or a teacher in first century Palestine. If you were a Jewish teacher, if you were a Jewish rabbi, you would begin by um, telling something from the Torah, from the Jewish law. And then you would discuss what great teachers have made of them. It'd be the equivalent of, of us talking about, um, I don't know, you know, Tom Wright or, or Tim Keller, uh, quoting different preachers and saying, well, they think this about this passage and they think that about this passage. It was the same in, in Jesus' time. If you were a rabbi, you would start off with, with the Torah, the Jewish law, and then you would say, well, Rabbi Hillel, he says this. Rabbi Shammai, he says this. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. What Jesus says is significantly different. What Jesus says is significantly more direct. And what Jesus says is significantly more challenging. Because what Jesus says is this, I say to you. This, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Not... Rabbi Hillel says this, not Rabbi Shammai says this, but he says, I say to you. And he says, listen to me. He says, listen to my words. And in this passage, right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he uses four pairs of contrasts. And so you have in verses 13 and 14, you have this contrast of there being a narrow way and a wide way. And then Jesus says there are two trees. There's a good tree and a bad tree. And then Jesus says there is two types of faith. There's authentic faith and then there's phony faith. And then he concludes again with this couplet. He says... There are two houses, one built on rock and one built on sand. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was sort of growing up in the church, and I used to go to church for about the first nine years of my life, I used to hear this story in Sunday school. When I became a Christian as a teenager, uh, through an SU, and he used to go and, and work on and help on an SU beach mission, we would tell this story to children. When I graduated from university and having worked as an intern, then went to work for UCCF and worked as a staff worker with students, I would hear this passage used evangelistically for people who weren't Christians. So whether it was in children's groups, whether it was on an SU beach mission, or whether it was in a university mission, This story of the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock was used directly for people who aren't yet Christians. It was used evangelistically. 
There's only one problem with that. That's not how Jesus used it. Jesus did not use it like that. Remember, Jesus is talking to his followers. He's talking to his friends. Yes, there are thousands of people who are listening in, but they're not the primary audience that Jesus has in mind. Who Jesus is talking to is the 12 men and a few women who are his friends, his followers. And he's speaking primarily to them. And it's to them that he says, there's a broad way and there's a narrow way. There's a good tree and a bad tree. There's authentic faith and there's phony faith. And then he says this, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice, you're like somebody who built their house upon the rock. The storms came and the house stood. But whoever hears my words and does not put them into practice, you're like somebody who built their house on the sand. The storms came and it fell flat. And what Jesus is saying is, if you claim to be my follower, if you claim to be my disciple, if you claim to have allegiance to me, if you claim to be living under the rule, under the reign of Jesus, if you claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, then you will hear my words and you will put them into practice. Not as a means of earning God's approval, not as a means of earning God's forgiveness, not as a means of trying to prove to God that he can now love you. That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying, if you're my follower, you will put my words into practice. If you're my disciple, you won't just hear my teaching, you will live it. And people will know by the way in which you lead your lives that you belong to my kingdom. That you belong to the kingdom of God. That you belong to Jesus. That you belong to the rule and the reign and the authority of God himself. And the challenge very simply this evening for you and for me is can people tell? Can people tell? Can people tell by the way in which you live your life? Can people tell by the way in which I live my life? Can they tell by the way in which I spend my money? Can they tell by the way in which I spend my time? Can they tell by my social media history? Can they tell by the way I act towards people? Can they tell that I belong to the kingdom of God? Can people tell that you belong to the kingdom of God? Are you hearing the words of Jesus and are you putting them into practice? It's a very simple challenge. Just like the simple and straightforward challenge that James gave us last week. You see, Jesus doesn't mince his words in the gospel. Time for him is too short. He knows, probably, he's only got three years tops. He doesn't know when he's going to die, but he knows that at some point he's going to die. And so he simply says to his 12 friends, his 12 followers, not follow me and I'll make your life better. Not follow me and I'll make your life easier. Not follow me and I'll make your life more comfortable. 
Not follow me and things will be hunky-dory. Not follow me and life will be fantastic. Jesus says, if you hear my words and put them into practice, then you are like somebody who is building their house on the rock. But if you hear my words and do not put them into practice, then you are like somebody who is building their house on sand, sinking sand. And when the storm comes, it will fall. And the other bit of the context that we don't pick up on is that of just a hundred miles away from where Jesus was speaking, there was a group of people who were building a house. There was a group of people who were working under the rule and the authority of King Herod, and they were busy, busy, busy rebuilding a house, they thought, on the rock. They were busy, busy, busy rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And they thought they were building it on the rock. But Jesus, in two years' time, would say, this house, this temple, this will fall. And it would do in AD 67. The whole thing would be reduced to rubble. Because they weren't putting the words of Jesus into practice. Even though they thought they were building on rock, they were in reality building on sand. And when the storm came, then it fell flat So the simple challenge for you and for me is not what we think about the words of Jesus, not what we feel about the words of Jesus. The simple test is this. Are we going to put the words of Jesus into practice? That was the challenge that Father Daniel had two years ago. Was he going to put the words of Jesus into practice? Was he actually going to do what he believed the Bible said and what he felt God was calling him to do? The key here in Matthew chapter 7 is simply obedience. Not to earn God's approval, not to earn God's love, not to earn the forgiveness of Jesus, but to demonstrate that you are a follower of Christ, that you are a disciple, that you are seeking to put his teaching into practice. And this is where, as I say, we take a step back as a church and we think, well, are we doing that as a church? Are we doing what Jesus has called us to do? Can people tell by looking at our life together as a church that we are putting the words of Jesus into practice? Our vision hasn't changed. Two years ago, a small group made up of some clergy and some vestry members and some church members spent two or three months together praying and listening to each other and listening to God, and we sensed that God was calling us to do this. We believe that God is calling us to be a church that makes whole life disciples, sharing the whole of the gospel with the whole of society through churches of grace. That's our vision as a church. That's what we believe God is calling us to do and be as a church. And we came up with what we called at the time four arrows or four strategic strands, if you like. They were discipleship, which is um, replicated by this Uh, pair of hands and social transformation which is um, symbolized by this open hand theological education by this enormous bible and we sensed church planting you see what i did there church plants plants in church church planting 
So discipleship, social transformation, theological education, and church planting. And the question for you and for me two years on is how are we doing? Well, something occurred to me when I was on sabbatical over the summer that that what we've been doing, what I've been doing over the past two years, is actually thinking about these four things as four separate things. We, We had this picture of four arrows But I realized over the summer that actually it's much more helpful, or I found it much more helpful, to think about it in terms of a cycle. It's much more helpful to think about discipleship leading into social transformation. And as people are changed, they then need theological education. As they get theological education, then God calls them and calls us to begin to think about planting new communities, new congregations, new churches, planting new churches. And what happens as we plant new churches is actually people grow in their discipleship. And therefore we see more change brought about in society. And therefore more people require theological education. And then hopefully more church plants. And you see it hopefully will gather momentum and gather speed over the years because one leads into the other. But how are we doing with all four? Well, the first one, discipleship. This is the one where everything really depends upon this one. If we aren't growing in our relationship with God, if we aren't becoming more like Jesus, if we aren't becoming closer to Jesus, if our relationship with God corporately and individually is not vibrant and lively and deep and rich and thought-provoking and thoughtful and thought through, then all the rest is a waste of time. Everything stands or falls on our discipleship and in the words of tonight's passage can people see that we're putting the words of Jesus into practice as they look at our life together as a church as they look at our lives as individuals can people see that we are putting the words of Jesus into practice are we growing in our relationship with God are we becoming more like Jesus In the words of this morning's passage, are we being changed, transformed from one degree of glory to another? Is the fruit of the Spirit, is the character of Jesus more evident in your life and my life than it was a week ago, a month ago, six months ago, a year ago, five years ago? Are you more loving, more peaceful, more joyful, more patient, kinder, more generous, more self-controlled, more gentle than you were a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? It's the fruit of the Spirit being seen in your life and my life. We have all these things to help that happen. Connect groups, ways in which we can connect with each other midweek and meet with smaller numbers of people. We have uh, transforming work groups. There's two of them being set up to help people think through what it means to be a Christian in the workplace. There's our children's work, our youth work, our student work, where we want to help people of different ages grow in their relationship with Jesus, become more like Jesus, become more filled with the Holy Spirit to influence their schools and, and universities and then for the rest of us, our places of work. But this is where it all stands and falls. Are we putting the words of Jesus into practice? But we believe that as we're changed, then we start to see society change. We start to see social transformation. We start to see a change in our city. We start to see a change in culture. We start to see not just individual lives transformed and changed, but we actually start to change the fabric of the world around us. 
And it might be through things like soul food. Soul food is just going from strength to strength. It's an amazing ministry that we do every Saturday where over 50 of you volunteer every week to cook a meal and to serve 100 guests. And it's a remarkable thing. But many of you do social transformation through your jobs. Maybe it's in education. Maybe it's in the health service. Maybe it's in the legal profession. But you're actually bringing about change through your day-to-day work. Then there are other ways in which we see change and social transformation. Alpha is, is one example. Alpha is aimed at seeing change in people's lives. Because you recognize that not everybody might be poor materially, as they might be perhaps as guests in soul food, but everybody is poor spiritually, and everybody needs that change that only Jesus can bring. So would you consider again about who to bring this Wednesday to the Alpha launch? Then there are things like bounce and jump and babies and toddlers that we do to bring about change in children's lives and families and parents' lives. There are church members serving on the caravan or as street pastors. Many people receiving counselling through our counselling service. Just remarkable the way in which about 60 or 70 of you have signed up to to offer a a generous and, and hospitable response to refugees who are arriving in Edinburgh, not on the scale of, of what's happened in Erbil, but for about six, eight months, we talked to the council and said, what could we do as a church? What's the unique contribution that we could make as a church to help people arriving in the city of Edinburgh who are refugees? We want them to know that we care. We want them to know that God loves them. We want to show hospitality. Now, if I'm honest, we had all sorts of ideas about what this would look like, very practical things. We were a bit dumbfounded when the council came back and said, you know what you could do? The unique thing that you could do as a church is restore beauty into the lives of people who are refugees. And again, if I'm honest, I heard that and went, seriously? Is that it? Restore beauty? But the more I thought about it, I thought, that is a gospel value. That is right at the heart of who God is. And the council explained that people who, for the last four years, have just gone from refugee camp to refugee camp to refugee camp, they haven't had the time or the resources or the energy to remember beauty. And so the council have said, just take them and buy them ice cream. Take them to Edinburgh Castle. Take them to Stirling Castle. Take them for a walk in the Pentlands. Because when you're a refugee, you don't have time to do things like that. You don't have the imagination to do things like that. And yesterday, Kathy and I were walking back through Stockbridge, and, and we met one of the team, and we said, where are you off to? He said, I'm just going to buy ice cream for 30 people. I said, Seriously? He said, yeah, I'm going to buy ice cream for 30 people. There's 30 refugees who've turned up, and... And we're just taking them to Inverleith Park and we're buying them ice cream. I said, it's October. <laughs> it's Edinburgh. Why are you buying them ice cream? She said, Dave, the sun is shining. I said, fair enough. <laughs> Restoring beauty. Josh interned with us last year and to his amazement and our amazement, God called him to head up the work of Alpha in prisons across Scotland. And it's his hope and our hope and our prayer and his prayer that within five years, every prison in Scotland will have an Alpha course. 
Social transformation. Lives being changed one by one. Change in culture, change in society. Lives being restored. Beauty being rediscovered. And then the third one, theological education. Now, I know for lots of you, this is the most dull subject under the planet. Even now, you're looking at your phone and looking at the Ryder Cup score. You know, those first, discipleship and social transformation, they were a bit interesting. But theological education, you were James Green, weren't you? Um, <laughs> snoozeville. This, for the church in Scotland, this is the game changer. For the last eight years, we've been working with the Scottish Episcopal Church and the training um, institution, the Scottish Episcopal Institute, to bring what's called mixed-mode training up from London. It started 10 years ago, out of HDB, where the Alpha course comes from, and 10 years later, HDB, St. Melitus, they're training this year 400 people for ordained ministry in the Church of England. There's a hub with 50 more students in Liverpool at St. Aidan's. And we've been talking, negotiating, praying, discussing, listening with the Scottish Episcopal Church to begin mixed-mode training where somebody studies for two days a week and then they are on the staff of a church for four days a week. So their theological education goes hand-in-hand hand with their spiritual and ministerial formation. Yes, they might go and still go full-time to New College, or they might do the part-time uh, Scottish Episcopal Institute course, but the third option that will be offered to people in the next 12 months for training as ordained ministers in the Episcopal Church in Scotland will be through mixed-mode training. And the key thing is this is really, really attractive to people under the age of 35. And what St. Melitus is full of is people under the age of 35. It's full of James Greens. Lord have mercy. But it's full of people like James Green, who are going to give 30, 40, 50, 60 years of ministry to the church. You are. You are the future of the church. And it may well be that God calls someone like you, even this evening, to ordain ministry in the Episcopal Church. I've had two people today, under the age of 35, who've come up and said, you know what, that mixed mode stuff, I think I might be interested. I think God might be calling me. And maybe there's someone, maybe there's a group of you here tonight, and in the new year we'll start a course, a group for people who are thinking about ordained ministry, who will lead different types of churches in different ways because you've been trained differently. Which leads us on to this one, church planting. Now, church planting can be a bit controversial. People say, they look around at Scotland and they say, Scotland is full of churches. Scotland is full of churches that are closing down. Scotland is full of churches that are redundant. Scotland is full of churches which is a history of division. Now, that's true. There is the old, old joke about the Scot who was marooned on a desert island. And because he was a Scot, and because he was canny, and because he was clever, and because he was really good with his hands, when he was picked up a year later by a ship that was passing, they were amazed at what he'd built on this desert island. He'd built a shop, and he'd built a house, and to everyone's amazement, he'd built two churches. And they said to him, why do you build two churches? He said, that's simple, I'm Scottish. That's the one I go to, that's the one I don't go to. Now, we know that the history of Scotland, the history of the church in Scotland is riven with division. 
That's not what this is about. Division is bad, but diversity is good. And the fact is that we live in a nation where 95% of the population do not go to church anymore. We are officially an unreached people's group. So yes, there are churches that are closing down. There are churches that are redundant. There are churches that are shrinking, but there are also churches that are growing, and there are churches that are planting. As I've looked back, even this past week, and just reflected as to what's happening around Edinburgh and what's happening just through people that I know in the field of church planting, it took me aback a bit this week. I got an email from Dean that we released two years ago to go and do the church plant in All Souls Fife. And he just sent me an email out of the blue this week. It concluded with these words. Last Sunday, I was walking into the school where we hold a contemporary service for All Souls Fife after I'd taken the two traditional services at St. Columbus and St. Serfs. I saw around 20 children in the children's groups at All Souls Fife, and I heard 60 adults worshipping in the main space. It made my heart warm, knowing that this had not been there two years before. I hope you know that all your support from P's and G's has been appreciated in advice and resources. Two years ago, there were three existing churches, each with 15 to 20 people in them. They still exist. But now there's a new church that is bigger than the previous three put together. 80 people in church who were not there two years ago because we planted a church. And then I thought about other churches that are planting churches around the city and beyond. Destiny now have four locations across the city, and they've got plans for another one in the next year. King's Church have planted into Livingston. St. Mungo's in Bologna have also planted a congregation into Livingston. Thomas Dean from Central has planted into Stenhouse, taking over that Baptist church. The Free Church of Scotland are starting planting churches. Yes, there are churches that are closing down, but there are churches that are beginning. There are churches that are being revived. There are churches that are being refreshed. There are churches that are being renewed. And there are churches that are being planted. And the reality is, with 95% of the population who don't go to church anymore, it's going to take a different type of church and as many different types of churches as we can muster to reach different types of people. So yes, there will be, sadly, some churches that will die, but there will also be some church plants, and there will be some churches refreshed, and there will be some churches renewed. And some of you who are here tonight, you will lead those churches, and you will be members of those churches. And 10, 15, 20 years from now, you will look back tonight, and you will remember, and you will say, this is what Dave said. This is the bit where my heart got a bit faster in the service, and I thought... Was it the coffee that I had before the service? And No, it's not. It's the Holy Spirit that's making your heart beat faster because you know that God has put his hand upon your life and he's calling you to be a leader in a church in the future or to be part of a church plant. For the last 12 months or so, Rich and I have been talking and he just feels this sense, this call to plant a church with social transformation at its heart. In the last two or three years, God has done something in Rich that is just remarkable to witness. He's got a remarkable gift, a remarkable ministry, just getting alongside and being there for people. And being for people, there for people who are often on the margins of society. 
And Rich senses this call to plant a church that may not be geographical, it may be sociological, it may be into an area of society, not a geographical area, but into part of society. It'll be a community of faith that is warm and welcoming and has worship at its heart, but it's a church for the poor, with the poor, and of the poor, and alongside the poor. It's not a church plant where middle class or wealthy people materially come to P's and G's and and poor people, as it were, go to that church. That's not what we're after because at some point we will ask 60 or 70 of you to go and be with Rich. We don't know where it will be exactly, but we want to to build really good relationships at the moment with, with local Christians and local churches and just sound them out and see what God is saying to them and if they sense what we sense God is saying to us. So would you pray for Rich and for Jenny? Would you pray for the bishop? Would you pray for the vestry? And would you pray for me that we will hear God's call, that we will know discernment, that we'll have clarity on where God is calling us to plant the next time. And then be open to what God might be saying about the next church plant in the future. But please hear this. Whatever happens with Rich, he knows and and I know, and we talked about this on the staff retreat, it cannot be his church plant. It cannot be Rich's church plant. It has to be P's and G's church plant. It has to be owned by all of us. In the same way that this vision cannot be my vision. Occasionally I hear on Vision Sunday or in the run-up to Vision Sunday, people say, are you going to share your vision with us? And lovingly I say, no. This isn't my vision. This is our vision as a church. This is what God gave to us as a congregation, as a, as a community of faith, as a, as a church two years ago, and it's our vision. And whether it comes to fruition or not is how much we all together buy into it. Most of the verbs in the New Testament are plural. They're not singular. And we get into trouble when we try and apply them individually. Which brings us to the postcard that you received on the way in this evening. Hopefully as you um, came in this evening, you got a notice sheet. And in the notice sheet, you've got a postcard, a, a postcard which on one side has writing. It says, together we're a beach. And on the other side, it has a picture, which what you might appear, you think, are shells. They're not shells. Do you know what they are? They're individual grains of sand magnified 250 times. Individual grains of sand magnified 250 times. I came across this picture uh, just over a week ago, and I thought, that is a great picture of the church. Because we're all individual, just like those individual grains of sand. If you look at those grains of sand, they're unique. They're beautiful. Some of them are more beautiful than others. But they're all different slightly to each other. But you put them all together and what do you get? You get a beach. You get a beach. And I thought that's a brilliant picture of the church. Because we're all individual. And some of us are more beautiful than others. But we're all unique. And we're all different shapes and different colors and different sizes. But together, you put us together and we form this thing called the church. 
And I told this story this morning. We gave out all these vision cards. And then somebody came up and said, hang on, didn't Jesus tell a story about a house being built on rock and a house being built on sand? And, and the sand wasn't a good place. It wasn't a good place. It was the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And I said, yes, but if you, if you then get sand and, and mix it with water, what you get? You get rock. That's what rock is. It's, it's just sand with water. Somebody else said, well, actually, if you get some more water, what you end up with is concrete. That's rock. So what I want you to do is to take this postcard home and stick it up on your fridge or, or put it on your car dashboard or, or put it at the front of your bike or put it in your Bible, put it by your bedside. And every time you see that picture of those individual grains of sand, think of the church. And think of the fact that you are individual and you are unique and you are made by God. But together, God has given us a vision to be a beach. God has given us a vision to be so much more than we can be as individuals. God has given us a vision to be so much more than we are just one by one by one by one by one. Because together, those individual grains of sand form a beach. But it all comes back down to this. It all comes back down to our discipleship of Jesus. It all comes back down to whether we're hearing the words of Jesus and putting them into practice. That's the challenge for you. That's the challenge for me. That's the challenge for all of us. Can people tell that you are putting the words of Jesus into practice. As we take communion tonight, as we take again the bread and the wine, these symbols of God's amazing love and forgiveness, would you resolve, would you decide, would you offer yourself afresh for God to use, for God to work in, for God to make you more like Jesus? So together we can be a beach.